0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of Church of the Geek. Today's episode is a talk that uh, I gave at uh, Chatham University uh, as part of the multi faith series, something that we offer for the university community through our multi faith council. We had um, not a lot of different things, but my talk uh, this year was um, based on uh, religion and Game of Thrones. It's entitled uh, "By the Old Gods and the New," and talking about the way George R. R. Martin uh, crafts the religious society uh, for Game of Thrones, and maybe some stuff that it might say about it. Yeah, hope you enjoy it, and uh, Geek be with you. To be here I just so you know I am Brian Bennett I am the uh, campus pastor for the Lutheran campus ministry in Greater Pittsburgh uh, I uh, we are we are connected to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America um, and uh, myself I uh, while I am the campus pastor I'm also a, a husband and a father and um, a geek of really <laughs> large uh, proportion I I um, I also uh, will tell you that I'm recording this for my podcast, The Church of the Geek, um, and uh, yeah, that'll probably go up tonight. Anyway, so I'm I'm down here because it's holding my um, my recorder and and my manuscript uh, as we go through it. So I am really happy uh, that Dr. Cramblotin had uh, had brought this up. Um, I had been uh, thinking about a. paper for it there's been a, there was a there was a call put out for a volume on popular culture and theology around game of thrones um and <clears throat> i didn't get that together but i did get um a whole lot of ideas and so i'm really happy to, that they come to this so um the um the landscape of high fantasy and i think that's where we put uh, game of thrones in this is uh high epic fantasy um is no stranger to tales of, of heroes and dragons, uh, characters embarking on grand adventures, epic battles of good versus evil, uh, gods and goddesses, magic. We, we have become companions in many of these tales, um, whether they're books or film or television or even Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and many of the creators, for for those who read it, some of these creators are really well known, the, the authors are Ursula K. Le Guin with uh, Earthsea and uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman with Dragonlance. You, Michael Moorcock with um, Elric of uh, Melnibonn and uh, Anne McCaffrey and the Dragon Riders of Pern. And there is a there is sort of a a new movement in um, high epic fantasy uh, with new authors um, Patrick Rothfuss and Brandon Sanderson building these really incredible worlds and. Um, uh, Nettie Okorafor, uh, um, uh, with her, like, her Binti novels and, and all. Um, there's just a few. Um, but we cannot really talk about high fantasy without at least a, a mention of uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. All right? uh, these uh, books uh, and movies... Uh, steals away to the uh, strange worlds full of adventure and and heroism or something approximating it. Um, All to give us a safe space to reflect on our own existence in a often mundane world. Um, So 1996 is when the novel, A Game of Thrones, for which the, the, the HBO series is named, but it's the first in right, A Song of Ice and Fire. George R. R. Martin publishes uh, A Game of Thrones, um, and here we get to know the Starks, the Lannisters, the White Walkers, the Targaryens, and of course, the dragons. Um, political intrigue, magic, um, and really foreign sounding names so I will screw many of them up and I'm sorry um but um these are all these are all perfectly standard fantasy elements we are used to that um that's what fantasy does um but within the first book even uh, it's clear that Martin has no desire in simply using these old elements in conventional ways um so let's let's return to Tolkien, right, for a minute. Um, Tolkien's influence in fantasy is unavoidable. I mean, Lord of the Rings has sold over 150 million copies. That's something. Um, Tolkien's work sets most of our expectations. Tolkien's work um, is sort of that foundational work that almost every other author builds off of uh, when it comes to high fantasy. And we... It is so important that it also now becomes really well-rehearsed. Its tropes are done over in various ways, um, both well and poorly uh, in stuff. But Martin takes the familiar themes and twists the stories up so that we end up shocked. Um, Nowhere in Martin is, is there sort of the idealistic vision of Tolkien where... The king simply returns because that's what the kings do. Um, there's no singular vision of the good in the face of the evil. Martin leaves behind the idealism of Tolkien and enters the grittiness of realism. Uh, something else Martin does in the War of Westeros is create a pluralistic religious society. Now, Tolkien is often lifted up right, uh, by uh, a lot of Christian readers because of the themes and um, sort of the the allegory that uh, is there. Uh, We get redemption, sacrifice, kenosis. Um, But in spite of all of that, there's really blessed little about the religious life in Middle Earth. Now, we can say that perhaps that absence is just there because it's assumed. Everybody knows it. And so just no character ever mentions anything. Um, but if that's the case, then everyone, be it hobbits, elves, dwarves, whatever, are all in lockstep with a monolithic religious view, and that's that. But Martin Martin doesn't go that way. Um, Martin has a full-blown religious framework in Westeros that is diverse and vibrant and make space for different beliefs. Mostly. Um, Martin's religions are shown with dedicated adherence, uh, specific practices, and a great deal of history. I mean, the amount of lore that is undergirding just the five novels, right? It's I think it's the reason Martin, instead of finishing book six, goes and writes, okay, here's the history, by the way, because. It's, I think it's going to end up being important. But there are massive websites of just detailing, and a good bit of this comes from that. But, um, so it, it's just it's remarkable. Now, the history um, is both the history of the world in the story, but also the history of our world, because uh, Martin is happy to mine our history, for elements within the story, he's he has said, and then of course I don't make it up, uh, but I take it and file off the serial numbers and I turn it up to eleven and change the color from red to purple and I have a great incident for the books. End quote. For instance, uh, Tyrion Lannister, pr- probably mostly everybody's favorite. Um, he is he is influenced by. Um, Richard III and The War of the Roses. Um, Tudor historians told tales of how Richard was twisted and deceitful with physical deformities to match his character's deformities. Martin knows that these claims are baseless, but they help him in his story. So Tyrion is hated by the gods with a twisted body that clearly showed the evil that resided within his flesh. Not, Not true, but that's... That's what it, that's what he is bringing to bear. Uh, he takes that that historical incident and twists it and wraps it around uh, Tyrion. Now, because Martin wants to borrow elements from medieval history, it, he has to include what we call religion. Um, we have our our notions um, are very different. Uh, we have oh, there's politics and there's religion and stuff, but in the In that medieval framework, those were all wrapped up together. Um, They didn't didn't occupy separate spheres of our life, like here's our private life and here's our public life and here's our religious life and here's our political life. Uh, Like we keep them all sort of in a spice cabinet where we just pull one out as we need it. So Martin, writing a saga, Medieval in Flavor, about political intrigue, religion must be deeply involved but if religions are involved Martin has to create the religious landscape um, so to that end Martin just as with the historical issues takes our earthly religion files off the serial numbers drops off a few things switches some elements here and there um, myths and rumors and the like Martin doesn't just copy our religions but the earthly counterparts are important to understand along with the lore that Martin creates for them. Mainly, we should understand what they stand for because very often by setting up our expectations, Martin is at work to subvert the whole story, to yank the rug out from underneath us. The Song of Ice and Fire is infamous for the twists in the story that people are not ready for. Ned Stark's Execution. Who ends the first book of a series with what you have set up to be the hero? <laughs> ah. uh, the Red Wedding. Red. Yes. Right? Red Wedding was... Actually, we're, we'll talk about that uh, Red Wedding here in a little bit because uh, that is directly related to all of this. So, if you uh, looking through, Martin has a dozen or so religions across Westeros. Some tiny uh, well, the Westeros and Essos, right? Um, those two together. There's, they're sort of all over the place. But um, three major religions uh, that the action centers around. We'll look at those. The, the old gods, the faith of the seven, and Reholor. Reholor. See, I knew I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it. Uh, the Lord of Light. We'll, maybe we'll just go with that. Anyway. So... We are actually introduced in, uh, to um, both the Old Gods and the New, um, that's the Faith of the Seven, um, at the same time, right? In the beginning of Game of Thrones, Ned Stark uh, has retreated to the Werewood after executing a deserter from the Night's Watch, where, while his wife, Caitlin, brings him news of John Aaron's death. In the book, we read of Caitlin's uneasiness in the Weirwood. Um, she also recalls her faith in growing up, in the faith of the seven, in the sept and the singing of hymns. And in, For her, we, we get her take on the two things uh, together. Um, and it's far different from the silence of the wood where Ned sought communion. So they dwell in some sort of peace. The 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 kingdom has a peace between the old gods and the new, right? Um, but they are strikingly different. Uh, Martin crafts the old gods from the um, from examples of Celtic and Norse animistic religions. Um, Martin drops the elements of the religion here and there, but it's. Um, we get, the, we get sort of the bulk of it in, in the first book when Master Lu, Maester Lumen, Luwin ugh, talks to Bran Stark and explains the history. The old gods begin in Westeros before human beings even arrive. Um, the children of the forest, small, mysterious, non-human creatures that we see um, uh, Bran encounter uh, later on, um, dwelled in, in Westeros with the giants, right? The giants called them little squirrel people. Um, And so in animism, the gods are everywhere. Um, That that is, they animate the woods, the streams, birds, beasts. The children of the forest worshipped the old gods and went about finding the thin places um, where the connection between the physical and spiritual worlds was particularly, particularly permeable. These thin places were located around groves of weirwood trees uh, right the trees with the white bark and the blood red leaves um, and these wo- trees seemingly lived forever um, and it's in those trees the children of the forest carved the great faces that leaked red sap it looked like uh, blood streaming from the faces and it was thought that the gods could see through those trees you would, if you wanted someone to swear an oath, you would take them and stand them before the tree because they can't lie in front of that. They would, it would be it would be clearly known. Um, and so, when the first men arrived in Westeros, they um, at first they are at war with the children of the forest, but ultimately peace is made, and uh, the first men took these forest gods as their own. Um, and then we hear somewhat uh again and again that the blood of these first men flows in stark veins particularly in Ned but presumably then in others Yeah is there some connection between the children of the forest and night king There is yeah I, so the children yeah the, the children of the forest and the night king um, they uh, it's not entirely clear, but it seems that there was some conflict, um, or maybe they arrive at some sort of broker deal, because there's a, later on, um, or long, long ago, uh, even with the first men, when uh, there was uh, a knight's king, who, not, not the same as the knight king, right, but then who comes in and uh, there seems to be some relationship there. Perhaps between this stark who was unnamed and a and a uh, um, a queen from the from the white walkers who marry and create so that's the, a lot of this is speculation but and so was there this peace treaty that was uh, done between the children of the forest and the white uh, and the white walkers um, that seems to be the case, although it still remains. Murky, and I, I, think that will be something that we come across a little more in detail this final season, you know, and in the final books. So, yeah, yes, they are. There's a, there is some connection there, but um, I, I think, um, oh, what is it? I don't. Yeah, I. Sorry, sorry, I had something and I lost it. But if you think about it. I'll come back. But so the pattern that Martin sets up. Here with the children of the forest is really similar to sort of um the irish religious history that um first you had uh pre-celtic uh people who set up shrines in these thin places um then the the celts adopt the same places and then celtic christianity comes in and appropriates the thin places um we see a similar thing with the children of the forest the first men and then the andals who come in. Now the Andals, this is where the, the new gods, the faith of the seven uh, come in. The um, Andals arrive after a long period of peace between the first men and the children of the forest and the first men have completely um, uh, entered into uh, the, uh, have completely adopted the, uh, the old gods. But the Andals bring steel and the faith of the seven. Um, they invade conquer westeros um, and the andals began cutting down the weirwood groves in the south which is why it is all, those groves are, are all gone and why caitlin's grove uh, her, her godswood uh at uh, growing up was just just a garden it didn't have a heart tree in it so the, the faith of the seven rids the south uh where those were worship but the no, the north retains the old gods and um, the new kingdom settles into uh, a tolerance of each, and they become sort of intertwined. They make space for one another. The faith of the seven, uh, the religion of the Andals, is, by Martin's own account, um, a inspired by the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the faith of the seven uh, is denoted by seven aspects of the divine, right? Father, mother, Maiden, warrior, smith, crone, and stranger. Um, originally understood to be distinct gods, um, the seven were united into one deity. Uh, the melting of the seven distinct but not separate persons are borrowed from Christianity's trinity, right? Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, three hypostases and one godhead. Um, we also see... Um, some of the faith's workings when the sparrow becomes the high septon. Yeah. All right? Um, there is a hierarchy within the faith. Um, Septons, septas, male and female clergy. Uh, there's also corruption and complicity with power. Um, when Ned is executed, the high septon remains silent when King Joffrey goes against the plan to allow Ned to live... Um, if he takes the black but he the, the high septon proclaims that uh, the desire of the king is the will of the seven and he can't stand then against the word of the king who proclaims the who, pro, who pronounces the death sentence upon Ned he, he set it up um, the battle between the sparrow and Circe um, is reminiscent of investiture conflicts uh, within the Holy Roman Empire um the controversies arose between crown and popes with regard whose authority comes from who, right? The question, does the pope place the crown on the emperor's head or does the emperor take the crown out of the pope's hand and place it on his own head, right? This is all reminiscent within, that, within this, this framework. Uh, so the seven are attractive to both the ruled and the rulers, um, The seven appeal to the common folk because they can speak to their desire for their simple needs to be met. Um, Father, mother, maiden, uh, uh, the issues of the home, the um, security, um, well-being, the smith and the craft, making sure that they have a livelihood, um, those can all be there. Um, But the rulers can also understand that what they are doing um, is the will of the seven in ruling and judging others. Um, If we think about the seven as the medieval church, they bear some connection clearly to to Rome, which for much of that time meant order. Um, So this faith uh, in league with the political authorities kept order throughout the kingdom. And it's not too much of a stretch to think about the seven as the, almost as the deification of order in daily life across all levels of society, um, which can pose a problem the death of Robert Baratheon uh, plunges the kingdom into chaos because the agreed-upon system of order between both the north and the south, that is, kings being granted um, their authority due to their lineage, um, falls apart because the dead king has questionable progeny. The discovery of which gets John Aaron, uh, Robert's hand, killed. Um Not only do we see war break out, but we have competing systems of honor because of the way the adherents uh, to the old gods and the new understand that notion of honor. The Starks understand honor to be rooted in the religious coding of the good of the kingdom. Their home, Winterfell, uh, stands in the north to remind the rest of the kingdom, winter is coming. I've heard that a thousand times. (laughs) But so their existence uh, as adherence to the old gods uh, is bound up with the narrative that their ancestors saved the kingdom through the building of the wall. Brandon the builder erected the wall. Um, the Starks and Winterfell stand as guardians of the kingdom against the forces of the others, which threaten the existence of the kingdom itself. The Lannisters, on the other hand, see themselves as guardians of the kingdom through their keeping of order. They do the will of the gods through keeping themselves in power because they are the most politically savvy. The kingdom of existence demands their family stays in power, so order will be kept. Both families are dealing with codes of honor, but sadly, the Starks do not play that game all that well. So Ned loses his head because he expects the Lannisters to act with the same kind of honor that looks out for the good of the kingdom. Except in their eyes, ridding themselves of political troublemakers is honorable because their family is simply more important to the kingdom because they are better at the game. Additionally, the whole Red Wedding fiasco could have been avoided if Robb Stark had listened to the counsel of his mother ...that Walter Frey was dangerous. She, as a born and raised Southerner, might have realized why... ...but with all of her time in the North, she had lost sight of the issue. She banked all of their safety on the North's sacrosanct notion of guest right. That is, to welcome another into your home and share a meal... ...ritualized by the eating of bread and salt... Uh, creates an unspoken promise that no harm will befall you and you will be protected no matter what. Frey is of the South. right is not in their religious code nearly to the extent it is for the Starks. But a broken promise is a loss of honor because Frey's house is besmirched. He must make amends. His honor demands it. Frey welcomes uh, Rob and Caitlin very tellingly not in the name of the old gods and the new but they're welcomed in the name of the seven clearly absent is that tolerant um, relationship that we might expect Frey is clearly operating under a new gods understanding he is not beholden to guest right In his eyes so in our right in in this place this mismatched understanding of honor and motivation right it is a danger in medieval fantasy settings but stepping in our own world for a second i think it's it is a moment to ponder that it's possibly a danger for like ecumenical and interfaith dialogues if we operate sort of in this sense of what uh, I've talked about in other times, and other places, the wagon wheel model of ecumenism, right? It's all, right, you've got the wagon wheel, you've got the outer hub, you've got the inner hub, and you've got these spokes going to the center, right? Oh, we all go by different paths to the center, right? To God, right? That's, that's one way that some folks think about it. Um, so it doesn't matter which path we take, we all get to the same center, we need to be really clear in those conversations that we actually are all going to the same place. Like that, the, 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 our notions of what this means and their notions of what this means. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it, it, we need to be really clear in those places. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that raised my uh, thinking here. We, we need to really be clear on that. If you if you have different notions, but you assume everybody's the same, this is where the problems come in. Now, this brings us to the third, um, the third God, um, R'hllor, um, the Lord of Light. Uh, R'hllor comes out of Essos, where he's very prominent. Um, in Westeros, he's marginal, but um, there are. Um, they are a sort of a, a proselytizing group, right? So they have missionaries out there. We see them in the streets. We see them in the cities. Um, and real lore might not really have a huge place in the story except for the red priestess Melisandre, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, so the the um, the Lord of Light seems to be uh, inspired by a Manichaean outlook on life. Um, the Manichaeans were a dualistic cult um, that actually the great uh, theologian Augustine of Hippo uh, was connected with before he joined the church and then becoming priest and bishop. Um, dualism is the outlook that that there are only two opposing sides. right? In this case, the Lord of Light and uh, the Lord of... Uh, ice right the lord of light and fire the lord of night and ice um the great other so uh manichaean manichaeanism had a uh, a good spiritual world of light and an evil material world of darkness um for melisandre the lord of light stood in opposition to the great other who doesn't even an evil figure that we don't must be opposed we don't even hear the the, the figure's name um There is no possibility for tolerant relationship, no possibility for syncretism for Rohalor. Rohalor is the good. Any other beings called God are manifestations of the great other. Um, In addition to instilling the religion of Rohalor with a dualistic take on the world, Martin Martin loosely bases um, this religion on Zoroastrianism, um, a religion that uh, came out of the uh, modern-day Iran um, sometime before 900 BCE, uh, but could even, by some accounts, gone back as far as 1700 BCE. Um, The prophet Zoroaster taught that only one god was worth worshipping, Uh, Ahura Mazda, who is associated with light, order, and a principled life. And there's an opposing god, Angra uh, Mainyu, who is associated with deception, darkness, and an unprincipled life. Um, And more importantly, um, particularly for us, Zoroastrianism had expectations of a messiah, um, a figure who would defeat the powers of darkness. That... Figure is important in the story, right? Because Melisandra is looking for Azor Ahai, the promised one who will defeat the Night King by wielding the sword Lightbringer. Uh, Melisandra comes to uh, Westeros because she is unhappy with the job uh, the Red Priest Thoros of Myr uh, has been doing. Who, who to her credit, uh, he has been having a crisis of faith, um, and he just became drinking buddies with King Baratheon um, um, so her bet for Azor Ahai is then Stannis Baratheon Lord of Dragonstone she believes that out of that place is where Azor Ahai is coming and interestingly enough it's Stannis's wife that connects the two Stannis himself is no adherent to Rohalor but he will take as much power as he can get and he's willing to do quite a bit um Melisandre's blood magic requires sacrifice regularly. Um, And Stannis is willing to do anything for that power, um, including sacrificing his daughter. Stannis understands the power that's wrapped up in religion. Um, Today, we might not literally sacrifice people uh, on altars, but politicians understand that power still dwells in, in religion and they will exploit it to their benefit. Now, I, I just want to be really, really, really clear here. Nowhere uh, does uh, Zoroastrianism have such sacrifices. Um, he borrowed stuff from Zoroastrianism but brought in the sacrifices from elsewhere. Um, so, just, just absolutely, I think it's really important there. Now, there's only one problem with Melisandra. She just seems to be wrong all the time, mm-hmm. Right? Um, her visions. Um, uh, she she wants to go. Uh, she thinks it's Stannis. She thinks it's Stannis. She thinks it's Stannis, and then that falls apart. So her visions begin to move towards John Snow. But it also needs to be said that she doesn't speak for all followers of Rohalor. Um, Bonero, the high red priest in Volantis, he pronounces Daenerys as. Azor high. So, um, so I think this is the place now where we have to bring in Jon Snow, Daenerys, and the dragons. The return of the dragons has in fact increased the, the, um, the potency of Melisandre's magic. And it's a point Martin makes, right? That the power of magic fades with the loss of the dragons. Daenerys' hatching of the dragons is a great awakening. And for, focus, uh, for a religion that's focused in light and fire, these dragons should clearly be seen as a sign from R'hllor. Now, Jon Snow's resurrection could be a gift from R'hllor, but Melisandre's prayers seem to be ineffective. Right, in we get the we get um, Thoros of, of Mere. Um, later on, uh, raising, uh, right, um, Benedict, the guy who has the, the, the flaming sword, the name name has now, right, um, Benederic, something like that, um, but he, um, he doesn't know what's happening, he doesn't know how that works, but it happens instantaneously, she prays over John, and there's a, there's a delay, um, so is it the work? Was it her work uh, and, and sign from Rohalor or is there something else? Does Jon's combined lineage with Targaryen and uh, Stark blood make him the master of ice and fire? Right? This, this wrapping together of these two lineages? I mean, the blood of the first men and the Andals? That's his? Is he Azor Ahai? But... Daenerys is no stranger to messianic fervors. From her marriage to Khal Drogo, she conceives the the stallion who mounts the world, right? Then loses it. Um, But then, she becomes the mother of dragons. Khaleesi. She liberates slaves. She ends tyranny. So, a messianic aside if we if we talk about messiahs, our understanding of Messiah is impossible to separate from biblical notions and while Christians lift up Jesus as Messiah, there are several figures lifted up as messiahs throughout Hebrew scriptures. Um, there, a Messiah is a is an anointed king or high priest, right? And uh, that's literally, when we come to anointed, right? Uh, the Hebrew word "Mashiach" and uh, the Greek word Christos literally mean anointed one. So, and there the anointing is the pouring of oil uh, uh, over one's head, um, right? But so that Messiah, the the, the king or high priest, is one who's been set apart to deliver Israel from some from some danger. David becomes a great messianic figure, but even it's not even um, messiahs don't even need to be of Israel. the The great uh, Persian king Cyrus is named as a messiah for um, his deliverance and edict to rebuild the temple following uh, the downfall of the uh, the. Uh, the return of Israel from the Babylonian exile. So, if a, if a Messiah must be anointed, what would the anointing of a um, of the Messiah of a God and uh, a God of fire and light look like? Might it be a consuming fire out of which the mother of dragons arises? Compared to that. John's resurrection certainly seems somewhat lacking. But I think that that's one of the mysteries that will be revealed over this last season. Who is Azor Ahai? Um, Who will end the threat of the Great Other as manifested by the Night King and his whites And now, Ice Dragon. Yeah. Now, all that's been said, but I think the last... There's one God that we still have to deal with. Um, the God of many faces.
1: <laughs> right?
0: Right? Because this one... Oh. Right? The, the God of many faces from Bravos. the religion of the faceless man who see death as a sweet release. If you remember back even in the first book, right? Where is Arya's swordmaster from, Bravos? Right, and it is her line. It is his line. What do we say to the God of Death? Not today. Not today. <laughs> we we get a we get a we get a, 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 a foreshadowing of that all the way in the in the front. We don't, see, we don't see that for a while. The God of Death arrives from the slave pits of Old Valyria. There in the pits, slaves would routinely call out to their own gods for death to deliver them from the pits. And ultimately, one slave, presumably, uh, begins to think, you know what, all gods are the same with different faces. So this leads to the slaves taking on the job themselves, giving the sweet gift of release. Until becoming skilled assassins, they turn their gifts towards their masters and then escape and leave for Bravos. Uh, their temple is then adorned with gods from other religions. You see this in, in when they see the, the, the all of their all of these gods are there, and they are seen as the manifestation of death. We see the stranger, right in the midst. We see Rohalor. So unlike the adherents of Rohalor, who see all other gods as servants of the great other, the faceless men appropriate these other gods for their own purpose. They see all gods connected to this purpose. It's noteworthy to think about the way that we are introduced to the the three gods in the beginning, thinking about this then. The old gods, the new gods, and Rohalor are all presented in connection with death. Ned has just executed a person, and is in the in the God's Wood. Caitlin enters the wood, thinking about her own religion, while she comes to deliver news of John Arryn's death. Additionally, in the show, Cersei Lannister observes the preparation of John Arryn's corpse by the Silent Sisters. That's the the religious uh, order within the faith of the Seven that deal with the dead. And Ruhalor is introduced in a scene of zealotry while statues of other gods are burned, putting those gods to death. And really, Melisandra's whole bag of tricks is centered around death. Shadow assassins springing from her womb. Um, the strange reversal of poisoning Uh, when uh, Meister tries to poison her, um, the child sacrifice of Shireen. Death is her trade. From very early on, religions, well, Martin ties religions to death. Arya's growth uh, in the skills of death have been revealed. Um, Her attempt to become a member of the Faceless Ones is met with mixed success. Um, she can never fully lose her identity. The girl always has a name. But she does gain the faceless men's ability of shapeshifting. While Martin has seemingly joked that the last scene of the book series will be the wind blowing through a cemetery, he might be tipping his hand in that the main thrust of this entire series is summed up by the Valyrian phrase uh, favored by the faceless men. Valor Morgulus. All men must die. It's interesting to note that because the many faced god is a syncretistic blend of many gods bent to their own purposes, there's not a clear historical analog. This god seems to be unique among Martin's whole pantheon. Is is that a tip off that this is the one true God in all of Game of Thrones? So the religion uh, and gods of Westeros, they're not merely a background for uh, over which the action of A Song of Ice and Fire happen. They're intertwined with the action and struggles of the characters. Martin has pulled from the wells of our history to give us signals throughout the books and show of what might be coming, but he sets up our expectation and subverts uh, the themes by exporting our own misunderstanding of the foundations of the religions and what they mean. He's done something unique in the scope of fantasy work. He has reminded us that power gets wrapped up in many layers. These layers themselves cannot be separated as much as we might want want to believe that they are. Politics, religion, family, identity, they're inseparable. And this might be a call for us to think about the way that we employ these layers in our own struggles for power and whether they lead to light and life or death. Thanks. Question. Question. So rich. The, the the source material is pretty rich, right? <laughs> um, that's that's one of the you know, and it's a and it's a it's a bit of a slow burn, right? Because the uh, when I, I remember when I read the first book, I went, "Huh, that's." I mean, it's barely fantasy, right? Like, oh, there's a okay, there's a dragon at the end. What? Um, but uh, boy, it uh, it ramps up then, right? So there's a there's a ton of stuff that's going on um, in those in there after that that introduction, and yeah. So.
2: Mm-hmm. Bran
1: Stark. Do you think that that's why they can see each other as Bran
0: Stark is yeah, Right, yeah. Bran Stark, right, as a as a greenseer, yeah. Um, can see the Night King, right, through the mm-hmm. through the trees and the Night King sees him. Mm-hmm. And has some power over him, right? Which is why I think there's some um, right uh, have read that there are some uh, right. There's been some. I think. I think this is probably where it goes. That there's been some broken truce. Uh, okay. Perhaps one of the things uh, that I read. A theory. Right when uh, Crafter, right the the king north of the wall, right out of which Gilly escapes. Right when when the when the Night's Watch um, destroy his thing. Right. He was the la- Perhaps the last the last human fulfilling that treaty remember the scene when he hands over the the all the baby boys get placed in, and then the night king shows up and and the eyes turn blue is is that a is that part of this agreement is that part of this truce but with the death of craster then is he now is the night king in, you know coming to say hey you've you've uh, you've broken this agreement and so that is a, um, that's that that's one of the places that I can go and, and sort of where this all comes out of, um, you know, talk about, I mean, sometimes it's hard enough when I'm in the process of like interpreting scripture, right? Taking a passage, creating a, a sermon on it, and I got to turn around and read this, but now, you know, it. It's not all collected in one place, and which is why I said it, it might be a reason why uh, Martin sits down and gets all that history, all that lore together. So it might tip some folks' hands to that. So, but yeah, right. I think um, there's definitely um, that deep connection that is beyond all. Of, like we, I don't think we have all of the details yet. So we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> Well, it, I mean, so, yeah, is the none and done group influencing like this?
2: Or the, the evangelical writer or whatever. Like, we, we do have yeah. of, of different um, things that are influencing our own political lives mm-hmm. um, and social lives. And, and is that being, do you see that being played out in the show differently than maybe he originally wanted to write the
0: books? Yeah, so, I think I, you know, I think that's, I think that's the case. Because also, remember... Right, he starts writing these back in the '90s. Right. right, and so this has been stretched out over decades now, um, and so he, so I do think that the way audiences now begin to look at this, as opposed to you know in the '90s when we don't, when you just have a book that comes out every five years or whatever, right, and then there's um, uh, this, we've now look at we now look at this. And there's a lot of folks who look at the night's or the, not the night the night king and the the white side of the, and go oh global warming right like that's a crisis like so certainly in our interpretation and martin has kind of gone all right sure yeah i can go with that you know um, so certainly in the way it gets interpreted i don't know if it's changed cuz i think um, yeah i that
2: it has, i just wondering
0: yeah no i think it's certainly the way we see it now might be different than what martin well, you know, well, once a once an author sets something out in the world, they don't have control over how it gets interpreted. So, uh, and so, I, I'm not sure authorial intent really is a, is matters anymore. Um, so, but certainly in the way we many folks read it, it matters, and it has changed. So.
1: Even when I initially watched it, it just reminded me.
0: I mean, she made she made the god she made the Godfather look really sort of uh, like child's play. I mean she she plays for keeps. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think it is a reminder. Not everyone in real life is like that, but it is a reminder of sometimes our um, the ways in which how we choose to use to either the extent to which we are that night or not. Yeah. Yeah. Grace, but it essentially, someone else is doing that. Shame, shame, right? And instead of you know reconciliation, instead of being that love, it will ultimately happen to that person
0: and the bitterness and the anger, and you know what I mean. That yeah. comes As a result of that, and so um, yeah, yeah. I thought about that a lot when I watched it. Yeah, I think we see. I think we see a good bit of that too in the.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that I'm
0: sorry. Oh. No. So I think. Right, I think we see some of that. Um, in a lot of ways, um, we do see it in the political arena. Sort of that, you know, um, eye for an eye kind of thing. Right. Um, I also think, right, there's there's places within uh, our online culture too that um, folks. You know, I have I've got uh, teenage kids, and uh, you know the the ways that um, they, they go at each other, or um, like, I think that's part and parcel of this same thing. Oh, you shame me now, I gotta, I gotta bring it to you, and um, and it's it's expected, right? And so, um, it is not that whole notion of uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in the terms of mediating the the the, the, the escalation happens so so rarely. Uh, it, can, it can it escalates very very quickly uh, so no i think i think um yeah i think there's a lot of place for us to reflect on how how that works and i you know i think about it in terms of uh as being a religious professional like how not just how i do it but how does my uh, church body handle things how do we how do we engage this do we you know do we follow rules in such a way that like, well, that's what it says we gotta do, and so now we do that and bring shame or you know, and how does that how does that work? So you know, I think that's a I think that's a big part of that.
3: Yeah, I think I see like um, one thing through watching the whole series and a lot of different things, is that I mean that's similarity like in ways that Christianity came to this country, like or you know, like the doctrine of discovery. And right. it's always this like We're coming to, like, conquer this land in the name of. Mm -hmm. um, And that is, like, played out in Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. (laughs) over and over and over over and over 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 again. again. And so to see it in that way, it's like we're actually living in it, you know, now. I mean, that's that's a very colonized system. And so, um, like, the parallels that, you know, even though it's set then and, you know, like, in a fantasy world. But, I mean, it, it plays out all the time. Um, especially when you're bringing up reconciliation like within Mm -hmm. like just um, indigenous peoples and like how we reconcile with religion today um you know that's
0: excellent yeah
3: Yeah. there's just always a conquering paired with a you know in the name of who whoever it is
0: yeah I, you know I think that's I think that's really, well. I think that's what you're right know, and I, as I, I mentioned this sort of in the beginning but I think that's one of the things that high fantasy does for us is that by taking it and setting out it gives us this place to sort of explore who who we are and doesn't we can enter into some reflection without going hey wait what are they saying about me Did yeah. I do it right oh no yeah. right no this is about the handles and the first men, and you know yeah. how that works so I think I think I, that's why I, mean, I always find fantasy be helpful I think
3: sometimes it helps with reconciliation, too, because, I mean, even though it is set in fantasy, I mean, we can still look at, like, you know, medieval times and such to know that it has always happened, Um, and so I know, like, just in my own faith journey, like, that sometimes helps with reconciliation, because it's like, yes, this happened to my parents or my grandparents, but it's also happened thousands of years ago, and it's just something that, you know, is within the world, (laughs) like... Yeah. Um, within like human nature, um, mm-hmm. so kind of like what you said, it's it's really nice to like see that outside of a personal setting and dissect it there, um, and then use those elements to, you know, apply to your own mm-hmm. whatever it may be, reconciliation or mm-hmm. reflection or
0: yeah, no, yeah, that's great, that's a good, really, really good point. Thank you. Yeah.
3: I
1: think um, that's one of, another one of the things that one of the, one of the reasons why like I loved Arya Stark and. Just Arya's very complex journey around um, the many-faced guys, and and because I felt like there was like this whole moment that was particularly hard for her um, to learn that it's not just about her, because she was so fixated yeah. on this list of people that she wanted mm-hmm. revenge on. Mm-hmm. That breaking that that breaking that happened when they rescued her, and she was there, and it was like this whole grooming of a girl is no one, and it's less about you not being no one, and more about you understanding it's not just about you, mm-hmm. and about. Um, you know what you feel like your individual needs are, but it's for what is this greater cause and what is the greater outcome that we're trying to achieve and through understanding that how do you still get your goals across even if it's about the larger um, outcome, right? And so the process of breaking and re-navigating and negotiating that tension between her very real need, especially after the red wedding, to be like, up oh, there's my list, you know, um, to get revenge with the juxtaposition of it's a larger goal and it's not just about you and come away from yourself enough to understand what the larger goal
0: is. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, those people might deserve to die, but right. you need to see the bigger picture, it's right. not just because of what they did to you. Right? Right. Yeah. So, right,
3: right. Yeah, she's always been my favorite because it's like, everyone else kind of seems to fall in line with like whatever their family was or their culture, whatever, or where they lived. But she's seen some stuff, so she was sure. like kind of doubt. I mean, she doubted all of it, mm-hmm. and through mm-hmm. that doubting, we've seen all this kind of thing, like the revenge and that, and then now she's at this point to that, and so I've always loved her character because of the, like, I should be this way, but like, because of what I've seen, I'm not sure what, you know, mm-hmm. and I have all these emotions, so yeah, I really love her. Right,
0: but she's, she's never felt like in her place and in her role, right? Even at the beginning, Right. She always felt like a failure next to Sansa. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, John gives her a sword finally. She feels like she can do something, right? And her, her dad gives her sort of dancing lessons, right? That, yeah. Right. That opens yeah. that up for her, right? But, you know, there is a huge... She is the one who set up the beginning for a real discovery of, mm-hmm. like, right. who can she be? So, yeah. Right? What's her
1: purpose? You know, because when you're not understanding in your own purpose, you get really caught up. And what someone else is doing and trying to compare yourself, but when you understand that you're walking your own journey and you have your own purpose, it becomes what is my next step and what is my next goal and how am I reaching my goals versus how I compare against someone else, yeah. Yeah,
0: well, I think that's maybe that's you know, just to go back to religion, right? If if the if your if your religious journey helps you understand who you are, right? I think that's the that's the good thing, right? So she enters into that. A lot of different ways of, of moving around, right? She's a, she's a, she disguises herself as a boy. She um, mm. moves around. She does this. She you know, finally ends up in in that uh, in the temple of, of the faceless one, and there is a place that she understands who she is. Helps helps her find right. her place in the world. Like, and I think that's a that's a even though it's all wrapped up in death, right? But I still think there's a sense there for her that that's a that's and there's something for me, true about that, our uh, religious life really the heart is it help us find out who we are.
1: Right. So. Yeah, and I think even though it's wrapped up in death, it's still like heavy religious connotation. Like right now, we see through a glass darkly, all be revealed in the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And so when you think about how Christianity, you know, to different theological extents related to the domination sees death and how that is like even pressing toward the mark the mark isn't that at some point in life will be perfect but that in death um, you become you know who you are or you know like this whole like, true like, right right it. and so um, even in that I think there's a lot of you know religious symbolism
3: yeah
2: absolutely well I think also when she leaves the faceless god Temple, essentially area, mm-hmm. and she uncovers her identity, her her yeah. needle, and then the Arias. She uncovers that again, and yeah. I think that's an interesting moment in her journey mm-hmm. to to be part yeah. of a faith that told her to rid yourself of self, but then be able to, to do that in a way that she could claim it in a stronger way. Yes, um, at the yeah. end of it was yeah. well, that was a it's powerful huge. moment. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, I could talk about this all day, but I want (laughs) to know we are over time. Um, Thank you so much, everybody. And I hope that you enjoy the premiere of season eight next week and the last season. And um, this is so great. So
0: great. Thank you all. thank
3: Thank you.